0: Some of you uh, might be familiar uh, with uh, the documentary that won the best, uh, Oscar uh, the Oscar for the Best Documentary last year, uh, Free Solo. Has anyone seen that? Okay, I've got a few of you. So you know that that's Alex uh, Honnold. This was an earlier climb that he had. He, he was uh, someone who was well-known for um, what's called free soloing, um, which is different—oh, um sorry— you know, see, I push, I pull this out. It doesn't make a difference, right? You can still hear me. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm just going to leave it out there. Um, so, uh, something called uh, free soloing, which is different from free climbing. Um, so, I don't know anything really about mountain climbing except what I watch here. But uh, typically, if you climb mountains, that uh, most people will use ropes uh, to pull yourselves up. And there's something for people who are more extreme called free climbing, where you don't use the ropes to pull yourself up. You actually climb up through, like, typical rock-climbing holds, and the ropes are only there if you fall. And then one crazy percent of people do this called free soloing, where you don't even have ropes, and you're just climbing up 3,000 feet into the air. And it's been described uh, by Alex uh, Honnold as that the equivalent of, like, winning the gold medal is when you climb up. Uh, He climbed uh, El Capitan, one of the only the only person uh, that ever climbed uh, this this almost vertical mountain in Yosemite. And when you make it up top, it's the equivalent of you you won the gold medal. Only problem is if you make a mistake, you die. So those are your two options. You, You win the gold medal or you die. And I think that's something relevant here uh, for today when we, when we think about this. I'm, I'm going to get back to that uh, in a little bit, but I, I thought that was a really uh, fitting way to uh, have us think about um, just what kind of race that we're in, um, that this passage, this very rich passage, is just talking about this very intense training. Uh, it's almost like uh, his, Alex's story that uh, he didn't just climb these mountains. He spent months and years going through them with ropes, climbing, knowing exactly where the holds are. Uh, he he lives out of his van, so he would make uh, things on his van where he could do pull-ups in his van. Uh, he, uh, he's a, I think he's vegetarian or vegan, so I mean he's extremely fit. Um, his focus is just how to climb these mountains. And he knows that the stakes are high, that it demands perfection because the consequences are death. And as we think about what it means to train for godliness, um, you know, there was a funny story that he told about uh, when he was climbing this mountain, he could hear people above who hiked up there and uh, were kind of talking on their cell phones and laughing, and he's right underneath in a life-and-death situation trying to make his way up. And when he finally got up there, uh, the first thing, as you heard, he did was he, take, he took off his shoes. His, his feet hurt from really being the only thing that is keeping him alive by one toe hold or one uh, grip on uh, a rock. And as he, as he went up over the, the, the cliff and got up there and he took off his shoes, so people that were up there who didn't pay attention and didn't know uh, how he got up there were just noticing that he started to walk down barefoot. And they started to tell him, man... You're you're really hardcore walking down barefoot, and they had no clue. You know, they just thought he was a lost hiker or something that that you know came up over the cliff, and so it, it's interesting that uh, you know while people might not know what we are going through, there's something about the contrast between those who are going through training that they may be suffering even, but they're actually gaining something that they're, 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 uh, in contrast to people who I think we all know, y- you, don't generally, uh, accomplish things by, uh, just, you know, lying down on your sofa and, you know, eating chips, um, other than gaining weight. Um, but there's something that's to be said about this intense training. So all this to kind of set us up for this, um, I, I have, um, want to cover this text really thoroughly. Um, It's something that I would advise even memorizing. This is a great passage, Uh, one of the most well-known passages about the gospel, and it's something that um, I will just um, ask our people to, um, or SIBO or others, if if you can just keep the passage uh, up there when I go through each point. Um, uh, My points are just going to go through uh, each of the four verses. Um, And the, the Title that I have uh, for this uh, message is called "The Gospel from Grace to Godliness to Glory." The Gospel from Grace to Godliness to Glory, and the three points are uh, really just the first point um, is dealing with what happened in our past, and it's grace saved us. Grace saved us. That's from verse eleven. Uh, The second point is just grace trains us. Grace trains us. That's from verse 12. And the third point is grace will purify us for glory. Grace will purify us for glory. That's verses 13 to 14. Um, I apologize. I'm going to go in depth for some of these things that if you miss something, I'd be happy to share uh, an outline uh, with you. So you can feel free to use our church Facebook page or if you just email the church, you'll get to me um, if you don't know my email. Um, But uh, the first point, grace saved us in the past, that's really uh, a term that uh, some of you may know as justification. And I don't want to just talk talk about big words, but you kind of have to know these because I think Christians talk about these terms a lot. The second point about uh, our present, how grace trains us presently, that's another term for sanctification. And the third point, how in the future, grace will purify us for glory from verses 13 to 14. That's another term known as glorification. Okay? And those are the three stages of, uh, really coming from my, my title as well, of uh, what a, a person who comes to Christ goes through all the way to eternity. Um, the beginning of this text starts with four. And anytime you see that, um, uh, you know that there's a, a, it's answering the question, Why? Uh, I was thankful to a uh, uh, Wicker Park um, uh, campus pastor, Abe uh, Lee, who was sharing that with me as an initial observation. That the, the, if you remember, uh, Pastor James last week talked about all these different types of people—young women, older women, uh, men—why they uh, were to live out their faith in action. This text is answering why should they live like that? Why do you live out your faith? And it begins with four. The grace of God has appeared. Um, it's interesting that uh, in talking about the grace of God appeared, again, how this text is split up. Um, you see, verse 11 talks about something that happened in the past. Verse 12 talks about, at the end, in the present age, and that's where we're getting our second point of how grace trains us presently. And then in verse 13, it talks about this uh, future appearing of glory, and, and that's uh, our, our third point about how grace will purify us for glory. Uh, So, in breaking up these terms, uh, I'll call this first point saving grace. Grace saves us, right? In other words, justification. And I think some of you are familiar with this term in that this is what most of us understand as the good news or the gospel of Jesus dying to free us from the penalty of sin, right? Um, It's a one-time act. It's something that happens outside of us when we're just declared righteous, and it's something that God works for us. It's something that we don't grow or work ourselves. It's not based on what we can do. Some would say that this is like a position that God gives us of righteousness. In contrast with that, our second point of how grace trains us, uh, training grace or sanctification— This is different instead of where we're freed from the penalty of sin, like justification. It's where we're freed from the power of sin through the Holy Spirit that is given to us. As you know, the text in Romans talks about just as the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, he's giving that if you are a believer to each of you to live the Christian life. It's something that is done continuously in the present right now as believers. It's something that's inside of us. And in contrast to justification, this does continue to grow, and it also continues to be something God works in us, uh, that he grows righteousness in us as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. The third one that probably people don't know as much about, since it's in the future and most of us don't think about that as much, uh, is this idea of glorification or this grace that purifies. Um, It's where we're in eternity, for those who have received eternal life to the end of time after Christ appears again, that we've been then freed from sin altogether. Not just freed from the penalty or the power, but you're just freed from the presence of sin altogether in the future, where we're given new bodies raised in glory, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. And it's God's work not just for us or in us, but it's God's work to us. And it's something, these are very important for us to not mix up together. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to this throughout uh, the message today, but I, I have to lay this out initially because I think this is so, they're so foundational uh, for us to know. Um, in justification, again, our works have no place with God. That in justification, we hang on everything on Jesus, that we contribute nothing to our salvation, right? Because the text says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But later on in the next verse, it talks about this training or sanctification, and that's very different, that, that we'd have an active participation, uh, and it's, it, it's stated everywhere within Scripture that we're supposed to strive, we're supposed to go, we're supposed to go after, to persist, to practice. If you think back on what we saw in the video, it's, it's this intense training that is described throughout Scripture. So, this first verse: For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Uh, we know, obviously, it's not talking about everyone being saved because it's only for those who believe. But it's offered to all people, right? For those who are uh, perhaps new to the faith or not yet a believer, uh, it, it might be kind of funny that grace is the the subject here. And so the question is: Who is grace, right? And and we know. Uh, for those who have been walking in the faith longer, grace is a person, right? It talks later on in verse 13, I believe, that uh, this is talking about uh, a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Things that we might normally just take for granted, but it's been debated throughout the ages, is that those are together. A great God, it's not separate, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this word for appearing uh, that occurs twice in this passage, both in the past and in the future. Uh, it, it's similar to the root word that we have for epiphany. So that Jesus broke into time and space, and he appeared. And this is what this passage, the grace of God has appeared, uh, that Jesus, later on it says in verse 14, he gave himself for us, that would continue to reveal that the grace of God is talking about Jesus, who's appeared. And again, this uh, we understand the salvation is what we know as the great exchange. That Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So because our sins were traded to Jesus for his righteousness upon us, that is the good news. That is the justification part of the gospel, that grace saves us. But that's not all that there is. Uh, To take a step back, I think it's good to kind of uh, think about uh, some of the uh, extremes that you see in the Christian faith. Uh, One being Uh, My my guess is some of you might have ended up at this church because maybe you grew up in a church that was very legalistic, that they were very concerned about what you wore, who you dated, everything that they were monitoring because they were very concerned about you having very appropriate appearances uh, to be almost perfect in your life. Um, uh, Some would call maybe like uh, a a sinless perfection almost that, that would be expected. Um, that's one extreme. Uh, The other extreme would be, I I, I think, maybe where our church tends to lean more is this uh, term that's called antinominalism or lawlessness or licentiousness. Uh, This idea of uh, it's just all grace anyway, so it really doesn't matter how you live. right? So I I guess maybe an easier way of distinguishing, maybe the legalistic side is the all-truth people, And the lawlessness side is the all-grace people, right? And I think it's interesting uh, in in just thinking about this dynamic because some of you, uh, if you're following uh, the news in uh, Christian circles, there's some well-known Christians who have renounced their faith recently, one being a guy by the name of Joshua Harris who wrote this infamous infamous book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. and in that, in the past few years, he was spending a lot of time apologizing for uh, ruining a lot of people's dating lives who are Christians in church. And, um, but then he went to another shift to where he, he separated from his wife and looks like is in the process of filing for a divorce, and then just most recently uh, said that he was no longer a Christian. Uh, A guy uh, that I know by the name of David French wrote this article about uh, this, saying that this was called the sexual prosperity gospel, that it was this if-then transactional relationship with God, describing what Joshua Harris wrote in these books, uh, that manufactured a sense of promises from Scripture and then creates this form of Christian entitlement or expectation, Uh, The the idea that if you didn't have sex before marriage, then God somehow owed you a good life or a good marriage, right? And and it, in effect, reversed the gospel message. It was teaching Christian kids that they risk being defined by their sins and not by Christ. Actually, the, the gospel message rests first, as we know, on the bad news and then on this incredibly good news. The bad news is simple. None of us are pure, You were never pure to begin with, and you can never be pure on your own. Our efforts are called filthy rags in Scripture. But the incredibly good news is that from the moment that you confess your faith in Jesus, you're not defined by your sin anymore or your impurity. You're not even defined by your own morality, but you're defined by Christ. And moreover, you find that for those who love God— you know the verse in Romans 8, that all things work together for good, who are called according to His purpose. So with with all truth people, um, I think that they've kind of taken a hit from uh, some of pe- people like Joshua Harris renouncing what they used to, to believe. But I think that that gives a tendency for all grace people to think that we were right all along and... Uh, Look, the the, the effect of teaching people to have such strict standards when you can't even live it out uh, means that it really doesn't make that much of a difference how you live. All truth people, in contrast to that, might go to scriptures to take things to an extreme about how we should be perfect and never sin. Otherwise, you will ruin uh, your relationship with God. Um, And and perhaps... uh, going straight for how your works have to be defining your faith uh, a passage just to look at that i think is valid but it's interesting if you just read this uh, or listen to this in first thessalonians 4 verse 3 it states this for this is the will of god your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor uh, God-breathed scripture that probably many of us don't hear very often or don't like to think about because we probably know people, uh, maybe your parents, maybe people in your lives that would uh, really just hone in on this passage and, and hit you over the head with it of if you've made a mistake in not abstaining from sexual normality, then, then you've, you've, that's your identity. You're doomed. You should be in shame, right? So these are the extremes. Dallas Willard has this quote that uh, has been mentioned Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Okay, Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. See, all grace people, uh, they, they have to know that there's still a continual effort that's required if you truly are a believer to become more like God. And if, like this passage told us, if you have the Holy Spirit in you to know that, this is very different from the gospel through justification is just a one-time choice to believe in Jesus, that you don't, you don't work, you just trust in Jesus' work to be saved. But it progresses. If you truly have believed in Jesus, it should progress to this sanctification or this grace training you that you learn that earning is typically seen when you do things out of guilt, And you give yourself credit if you're doing good works. And that's very different from when we have the Holy Spirit in us and continuing to change us to be more like him, that we train ourselves and use our effort out of love for God and others to be more like him. So it's very important not to confuse, again, justification and sanctification. I'm I'm hammering this in just so we have no doubts about this, that justification is where we bring nothing to the cross, but sanctification is where we must take active responsibility for growth in the Christian life, because the Holy Spirit lives in each of you who believe in Christ. It's like the example of if If you haven't thought about what is the sin that you need to be fighting more now in your life, if you don't know that, then perhaps that's a sign that you haven't been active in fighting this battle. Because if you don't know, then how can you engage to fight the sin in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit that he's given you? And it's by God's grace that you can start making progress. Uh, there's uh, a lot of biblical words that are linked with sanctification that are all fighting terms. It's like mortify, strive, fight, and wrestle. And so we just need to be very careful not to make sanctification our work that's separate from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays a role that he invites us to participate in. And again, in justification, we don't do any work. But in sanctification, not only do we work Um, in in terms of working out our salvation, but we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And so the the gospel is about not just justification, it's also about sanctification, okay? And um, there are people uh, that when I was doing research for this, that honestly believe the gospel message is only about Jesus dying on the cross for you, that it's only about justification and paying the penalty for your sins, I think we have to really call that out as wrong, that's incorrect, that if you look back at Scripture, you know, why else was there the resurrection? Why else did Jesus have to rise again? If the good news is only about him dying on the cross for our sins, why did he have to rise again? What's the significance? Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that's why, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless or futile, and you are still in your sins. I think if you don't recognize the power of the Holy Spirit being raised from the dead, that that same power being given to you, you are still in your sins. That justification may be the foundation of the good news of the gospel, but sanctification is actually the goal of where we're headed with the gospel. And you can't separate those two. It's not just one or the other. I was talking to Pastor Brian about this and he was talking about in the history of the church, uh, maybe Church of the Blood have been accused of being more uh, grace-based, only preaching the gospel. But it's not the gospel or works. It flows from the gospel into being trained for go- uh, godliness. It's, it's not one or the other. It flows from one to the other. Um, it, it's when uh, the desire to be like Christ has replaced our desire to sin. That we, when we become believers, it doesn't just stay in our head knowledge, but we have this love that we get to obey our Lord, that we have this freedom to not be enslaved to sin anymore, and that we have uh, this command to obey our Lord if we truly believe in him. Uh, Pastor Colin Smith talks about Jesus came to bring forgiveness for our past sins and also power to face our future temptations. We need both. So the first point, grace saves us in the past. In the present, grace trains us or is training us from verse 12. Training us for what? To, it's both the negative and the positive. It's to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions in the negative and the positive. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. As uh, Deacon Alex Haskins said in our men's retreat when we preached on Titus, grace saves but also trains. Grace is our trainer. I think that's a great point. Uh, So we understand that this grace of God has appeared and it's salvation for all people, but it's especially, as uh, 1 Timothy 4 talks about, it's especially for those people of the faith in terms of the training uh, and, and the waiting aspect, that that is the truth that we want to uncover. Um, it's Maybe when we talk about all grace people and all truth people, I, I want to bring it back here that there's a way that they can all be reconciled. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is Fully grace and fully truth. It's in Jesus that we have these two together. Maybe one example uh, that I can share with you um, is this. Uh, I had to consult uh, dentists here, uh, so uh, with Steph's permission, um, I, I'm going to call her out for th- helping me understand the process of having a root canal. So if in this, in this issue, uh, I actually think um, I, I was drinking something, and so I think uh, I was feeling like, more, when I drink cold things on my top molar, it was kind of hurting a little bit, so I think I have to go see Steph or somebody soon. But um, So I guess that's the situation that we see a dentist. And if I went to Steph saying that, you know what, every time I drink something cold or I have ice cream, it really starts to hurt in my upper molar, and Grace just, uh, Steph just told me, listen, Steve, uh, why don't you sit down, I'm gonna help you. You're gonna feel much better. And she takes out this big shot, and she gives me a huge shot of Novocaine, and I can't feel anything anymore, and I'm like, this is great, Steph, thanks so much. I'll see you later, and I go home. And then I realized, wait a second, after the numbing effect wears off, my, my tooth still hurts every time I eat ice cream. Steph, what are you doing? This did not help me, you just, you just tricked me. I felt better for a few minutes, and then now I'm in more pain, and it's getting worse. What Steph told me is that you need, in a root canal, it's when the nerve at the center of the tooth is somehow uh, trapped or it has bacteria and that uh, this bacteria starts infecting the nerve. And the root canal involves cleaning out the infected nerve and leaving the tooth uh, still functional and u- usable. So the procedure involves accessing the, the nerve of the tooth and drilling to the center of the tooth, cleaning out the nerve tissue and shaping that space so that uh, they can fill it with a material and seal it off with either a filling or a crown to protect the tooth from future bacteria. So, um, so thank you for that stuff. Uh, so, so that's the details that are really required for a root canal. And in the same way, all grace people are all like the Novocaine people. You know, you sinned, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, yeah, you know, don't worry about it, it'll be okay, you know, you'll you'll feel better, God loves you, and you just send them off, right? But if you know the intricacies that are needed to be trained for godliness, how much that involves us getting into each other's lives, not only to speak the gospel over each other, but to live the gospel with each other, I think the illustration of the steps needed for a root canal to be done is a beautiful illustration of all the steps that are needed to really get into each other's lives to be praying fully, uh, using the word to help people walk through their deepest and darkest sins, right? That grace and truth that is in Jesus, perfectly found in Jesus, he was full of grace, full of truth. That combination of grace and truth brings healing over time. Grace and truth bring healing over time. Jesus lived this out, if you remember, in the story with the woman caught in adultery. Remember what he said to her at the end in John 8? Neither do I condemn you. That's incredible grace from God in the flesh, from someone caught in adultery to say, neither do I condemn you. But he didn't leave it there. He said, but go and sin no more. That's truth. Grace and truth bring healing over time. So where that leaves us, I think, is as we understand it, uh, learning uh, about where our church has been, I think it's important that as it's a good thing, for the most part, for us to learn how to be transparent and even learning how to confess even sins that are so dark that they've kept us in bondage for many years. It's not enough to simply speak the gospel over someone. That's a start, and it's, it's, it's important not to leave them in shame or judging. But the common complaint I've heard about many people coming back from retreats in the past years is after I've confessed my deepest and darkest shame, you speak the gospel to me over at the retreat, and that's it. There, there must be something more, right? And I know that our church has tried to create DNA groups and other things, but let me break this down a little bit more, what that looks like. What does it look like to live the gospel together? I think that would mean one thing, that you intentionally bring up that sin that person confessed again. Even as uncomfortable as it is, you would bring that up to them and you would ask them, how can I continue to ask you and keep you accountable on how you're doing with this? It would involve training intensely together in, in preparations to meet Jesus, that we don't, we, we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. It's not just up to us. That we want to be prepared when Jesus comes. That that it's walking in community to challenge each other to grow, whether in small groups or discipleship groups. It's even to memorize Scripture together. You know, I've just started to do that with uh, the guys that I disciple uh, who are deacons in our church. That. Uh, we started to implement that because Scripture tells us that that's part of the sanctification process, that we do that out of love, uh, not out of judgment, but it's to help people grow and and not just help them live out the gospel, uh, to help them live out the gospel and not just speak it. Uh, The text here talks about worldly passions, which I I think are commonly described as a lot of sexual immorality or lusts, that, that we are supposed to renounce that, as followers of Christ that uh, when I mentioned memorizing Scripture, uh, I think uh, Andrew Robertson told me uh, something that stuck with me, like when you memorize Scripture, some people who have memorized whole books of the Bible or chapters as we're doing, it's better than any smartphone app, any, any Christian smartphone app, right? <laughs> because you don't need your smartphone. It's, it's in your heart when you've hidden that in you. You can cue that up whenever you need to without a battery. And John 17, John 17 says this Sanctify them through your word. That there's something in the sanctification process that's linked with his word, especially when we hide his word in our heart. Um, that it's how we disciple and grow together in contrast to simply checking in on people or monitoring them. It, it's one, one other tip is that if you want to grow and challenge yourself to grow spiritually, start mentoring or discipling a younger person or believer. There's no other way I've found that will make you much more careful how you live the Christian life and to make sure that you're practicing what you preach, right? And the goal, again, being to look less and less like our sin and more and more like Jesus. Uh, one clarification, when Jesus says, go and sin no more, he's not talking about sinless perfection, um, uh, Pastor Colin Smith uh, uses this term that in the Christian life, it's about winning some battles, not, not all battles, in your war against the flesh or sin. That you fight all of them, but because this is a process, you shouldn't be discouraged when you can't win them all. Right? The, the battle against sin is this warfare, this battle in which you develop a position. Every time you say yes to a sin in your life, you increase the power of that sin in your life. But every time you say no to a sin in your life, you weaken the power of that sin in your life. The other day, I, I think I was uh, home by myself and I think I'm always uncomfortable with that just knowing uh, my, my past history um, when uh, I was exposed to pornography at a young age and so I, I just can't trust myself to have internet access to myself. Um, I, I can't even have a Netflix subscription by myself. And I was feeling so uncomfortable. I, I just had to get out of the house. And, you know, the, the best thing about moving from the suburbs into the city is that there is so much to do when you walk outside of your house here in the city. You know, I got to go to the Art Institute on a free day for the first time. I got to go to Navy Pier. You know, there's just so many things that we can do to flee temptation and really experience what God wants us to experience instead of objectifying what the world objectifies in its continual ways of harming people, uh, that we've heard horrific stories of sex trafficking and other things that inadvertently I fear how many believers are contributing to that by what you look at on the Internet. So there's these negative and positive reinforcements. It's reinforcing to to renounce godliness and live self-controlled lives. It's to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify us for good works. That confessing sin is just the first half of this. And it's the second part that we're focusing on the spirit powered love and living. Um, God's grace leads not only to salvation, but also to obedience. That there were people in Titus 1 that professed to know God, is what it says, but they denied them by their works. And Paul calls them out. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So it's, again, not enough to say that we know God, but we have to live it. Uh, People know this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, "'Cheap grace is the teaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance.'" Grace is totally and completely free to you, but someone paid for it, Jesus. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. God's grace cost Jesus his life, and he calls us to train ourselves to become like him in godliness. So we know that uh, grace saves and also trains us. Um, Colin Smith talks about this training for godliness that as believers, we should make this the vision of our lives, that this is foundational. To, to watch our lives, especially in light of what we see among churches and church leaders all around us in Chicagoland. It's so important for us to go after godliness, that this is the ultimate goal in our lives, just like the mountain climber that we saw, that his goal was not going to be deterred to get to the top. That was what he was training for, and to become more like God is what we do as intensely um, Third point is this, that grace will purify us for glory. And this is talking about the future or our future sanctification. Uh, Verse 13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So this idea of waiting on our blessed hope, um, I know some of you after, this is probably a while ago, you know, when athletes, like, win, like, some championship or the Super Bowl, do you guys remember this commercial that often would come on right afterwards? They would say where they would go. I'm going to Disneyland, right? I think we Disney World. Disneyland, right? We were at our dinner table uh, a couple weeks ago, and my son has been asking a lot of questions about life and death. And all of a sudden, while we're eating, he just, like, stands up, and he says, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> and we all looked at him. And he's like, what, what is with him? And, and he's like, I'm going to heaven. I believe in Jesus. And, and we're looking at him and we're like, you know, you know it's kind of weird, but then isn't that, shouldn't that be all of our reactions that this life is so temporary? We're, we're going to heaven. If you believe what scripture says, if you place your faith in Jesus and his righteousness, you're going to be with him for eternity. And, and my son's reaction I think, who cares about Disneyland? You're going to heaven, right? I mean, who cares? So this idea, there's this bound climber, it's the same thing. He was so focused on getting to the top, and the alternative was death. And in the same way, if our focus is on getting to heaven, our, our alternative, all we have to do is look all around us. It's sin leading to death. That, that's the alternative. Uh, I had a mentor who, two years ago, uh, passed away as he was walking uh, to handle one of our court cases uh, right on Madison uh, of a heart attack. And um, you know, one of the ways that God called uh, us out of our more comfortable life in the suburbs was just to see how short life can be, especially for a mentor of mine who, uh, when I started my practice, uh, was my go-to person for all my advice. And it was almost like God was telling me when his life was cut short so quickly um, that he was calling me out and, and to begin to learn what it was like to, to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. So, so Jesus redeems here, but he also purifies. You know, the text uh, tells us he, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Um, a question some might ask is that if we're going to be glorified in heaven and he's going to give us new bodies, and why do we have to be sanctified now? Why why spend all this time training if if we're just going to be given new bodies anyway? Um, I don't know if anyone has thought that, but I I, I was frantically trying to to, to look this up because I was so concerned about how to answer this if someone asked me. Uh, I, I think the two answers I could come up with is, number one, you know, Scripture talks about you're rewarded in heaven, um, and there's enough there that Jesus says and other scriptures say about there's some correlation between your actions as a believer and the responsibilities or, or rewards that you'll be given in heaven. It's, it's not that your works will earn you a place, okay? So again, let's not go to the justification part. But somehow, your training for godliness has an impact on what you will be doing on the other side of eternity, The second reason is this. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness or sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That passage verse is telling us that without holiness or sanctification, no one will see the Lord. So that's your other answer. If if you're not sanctified, you may not be a believer. That, that, that is the natural process from justification to sanctification, to grow in your holiness. And when we understand that it's not up to us, it's simply about us obeying the power of the Holy Spirit, it becomes not so scary to think about a word like holiness. That's just what happens in the Christian life if you really obey and follow him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Again, the grace of God, which is with me. So we see that this grace of God, it's first coming, appearing in this passage with grace uh, and how Jesus is described, and then the second appearing is talking about glory. Jesus and and glory. This waiting for this hope of future glory that's an expectation and also an obligation for us to obey. Uh, It's this expectation of Christ's future return which encourages us to persevere right now. Maybe one thing for our church during this season to think about is this gospel that is both grace and truth, that it's a gospel that has also an element of accountability, of sanctification, of discipleship. Um, It's about living in love. Because if we think about what godliness means, there is no greater essence of godliness than this love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we're invited into if we're going to follow Him. To grow in this love. uh, This is what the gospel looks like. It's not simply just confessing your sin or speaking the gospel. Um, It's this vision to love one another with this type of godly love and, and to shepherd people towards mission. Yet it's not just to bring people to the Lord in order to just be saved in order to serve but it's an order that we would bring people not just to save or convert them in order to serve in order to serve a church but for them to be saved in order to grow to become more like Christ that we're not afraid as fellow believers not to to, of suffering or rejoicing, learning how to rejoice in even our suffering, because that helps us become more like Him. That this perhaps is a time in our church to begin to have this vision to rebuild, because as we love one another with this love of God that He invites us to, in, in how He loved us, how Jesus loved us, then we will know what we're inviting people into as far as what our church community looks like. Uh, I think we're going to have a a time of corporate prayer tonight at 645 that I would invite all of you who are concerned about our church to join us uh, to continue to pray as grace leads us and we continue to look together uh, to the Lord to guide us during this time in our church season. Uh, Last verse is this, verse 14, who gave himself up for us, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That should sound familiar if you're a student of scripture, especially of the Old Testament. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. The, the debt that the cross paid from Jesus also reconciles us to this relationship with God. It's what's called this new covenant that we see in the Old Testament. That Jesus' grace is about salvation, but it's also about training, as we see. This forgiveness, Jesus' grace is about forgiveness of sin, but it's also about training for godliness and purity. Jesus' grace is where he doesn't remember your sin if you are in Christ Jesus, but it's also where he writes the law on your heart that he is full of grace and truth. That comes from Jeremiah 31. It says, "Behold, the days are coming," declares the Lord, "while I make a new covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, uh, that uh, but this is my covenant that uh, that they broke, though I was their husband," declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, declares the Lord: I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, Ezekiel 36 talks about also, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So I think that was important to see that it's the Spirit. This is the new covenant that we're into, that he's putting that Spirit in us to cause us to walk in his ways. Um, Verse 14 also starts that, Who gave himself for us. That should sound familiar also, right? Right? Uh, for those who've studied uh, passages on marriage in Scripture, Ephesians 5, there's that direct parallel, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Um, and we know that ultimately, this is talking about Christ and the church, um, that uh, uh, ultimately, this is what the mystery is uh, profound And saying that when a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall be one flesh. This is pro- a profound mystery, and Paul is saying that this refers to Christ and the church, actually, that we are his people, he is our God. This is a relationship that he's bringing us into. Tim Keller says this, the Bible begins with a wedding, and this wedding's original purpose was to fill the world with children of God This love from God is what we are invited into, and is what lasts for eternity. This is the marriage that was in the beginning and at the end of the Bible. At the end, when Revelations, uh, there was this marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, In Genesis, the Bible opens up with a woman and a man. In Revelations, at the end, the Bible closes with a woman and a man. The Bible opens with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. It opens with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. It opens with a boy and a girl, and it ends with a boy and a girl. Your, your Bible is essentially a love story. I think you should cue the tape now. So some of you told me already, I've ruined the movie for you by showing the ending, and I thought I exhausted all the scenes that I possibly could, but, and I had this dream of seeing that I, God told me I should use this clip about this relationship um, to symbolize his relationship with us. And since I got so much flack for playing an old Indiana Jones movie that people didn't like, I went back to the only movie I've seen since I've had kids, which is this one. So this is why you're watching that. Um, so this is about what he, God, Tim Keller says this, that he has to be in your life as your lover. He has to be in your life intimately that Pope Francis even says he, he loves us. He loves us as a father and a brother and a friend, to be sure. But he loves us in a particular way as a spouse. In fact, as I often say in my books and lectures, we can summarize the entire Bible with these five words. God wants to marry us. When we proclaim Christ's saving love to others, we are proclaiming the love of the eternal bridegroom for his bride And we are inviting them into the eternal communion with the divine. And it's uh, you're you're, this this is kind of an incredible thing to think about that you are actually invited for those of follow Christ. You are invited to be the bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, We think about we've experienced such grace here if you are a Christ follower, but can you imagine that there's greater grace to come? There's this idea that we are betrothed to to Christ, um, and that that's a term that talks about a more serious engagement than just a, a, a typical engagement, because it's like you're committed, you, you actually had to go through a divorce process if you wanted to end it. You're, you're committed. All you're doing is waiting for two things. One, for you, the, the groom to go build your house that you're going to live in forever. And secondly, for you as the bride to get ready with the right attire, your dress, everything else. right? Can you imagine that? Keith Green, uh, Pastor Abe, told me this quote that I I liked in in one of his song lyrics. It goes, if this world took six days and that home took 2,000 years and counting for Christ to go prepare for us, this here on earth is like living in a garbage can compared to what's going on up there. Beloved, will you prepare for your wedding by being purified, trained, Through even the suffering of this very temporary, momentary life, which you should rejoice when you get those, because that only trains you to grow in the things that you can't grow anymore once you get to the other side, meaning your faith, you can't grow in faith anymore once you see Christ. You can't grow in hope anymore when you're face-to-face with him. You can't grow in evangelism anymore. There's no one else to tell. The only thing you can continue to grow is love, and that's why it's the most important thing we should be focusing on that will continue for eternity, right? That, that, won't this having this perspective? Won't this change how we see our trials, our suffering, our problems in our lives, and even in our church? Revelations 19, as I close, says this: Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Revelations 19:9. 9, this was followed by an angel telling John, "Write." Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. God wants to marry us. God wants to marry you. Can you believe that? If you're a believer, if you do this exercise, if you just close your eyes just for a second, this is such a mind-blowing concept. If you can think of God actually asking you, will you marry me? Will you marry me? Will you marry me? What would you say? Would you choose him over this world? Would you say no to your sin and yes to godliness? Please pray with me.